0: Hello, once again, welcome back to the Gratuitous Bossing Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Greyhawk. And I'm your co-host, Jack Nefflin. Thank you for joining us for episode six of our Bride of Monster Bracket. We'll be finishing out round two today. We'll be discussing 2019's Us, as well as 2013's Oculus. And the companion films to those are 1956's Invasion of the Body Snatchers, as well as 1963's The Haunting.
1: And these are movies for doppelgangers and cursed object, cursed thing, the, the general miasma of mental illness and how it affects haunting in a hauntological lens. Mm-hmm. And haunted house movies.
0: Yeah. I always really enjoy round two in incorporating the companion films because it just allows us to get a better understanding of the evolution of some of these tropes as well
1: as kind of the genre as a whole. It often makes what we're watching in the present look a little bit better by comparison just because some things have not aged well.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Speaking of things not aging well, want to talk about Invasion of the Body Snatchers? Sure. Oh, where do you want to start? Oh, I mean, I think overall the movie's pretty good. A solid, exciting film. The characters are reasonably compelling, you know, like good acting, a lot jazz. But Mm -hmm. the main character just loves to grab ladies by the arm and help them run by just dragging them along.
0: Yeah, 1950s thing. Like, honestly, it's distinctly a sci-fi thriller. Mm -hmm. But it's structured almost like a private investigator noir film.
1: Yeah, it feels like what if Hitchcock did an episode of Twilight Zone. Which is honestly a compliment. Yeah. I really
0: enjoyed it. I honestly was not expecting to enjoy it as much as I did. Mm -hmm. It has all the great parts about classic 50s films without a whole lot of the shitty baggage stuff. Mm -hmm. For the most part, this film, it doesn't treat women horribly. It does treat them as incapable of protecting themselves a little bit. Mm
1: -hmm. Although I think at least a certain amount of that is the men in the film being like that. Like, there's a part where uh, towards the end they're kind of cornered and the protagonist love interest uh, it's like
2: You're forgetting something, darling, me. It isn't three against one, it's three against two. Give me a knife.
1: I feel like there's an element of pushing back against that in the film, but, you know, it is doing a lot better than Fifty Foot Woman was. Mm-hmm. A
0: thing that I, I really do like that dates this film heavily is They come across the first doppelganger that has not like taken over someone. They are like laying out on a pool table under a sheet and the the doctor who's the main character, Miles, investigating it and they put two and two together that the proportions and the face look very similar to his friend who lives there Mm -hmm. and they all start kinda like freaking out and psyching themselves out and everyone's like But
2: whose face? tell
1: me that i think we could all use a drink bourbon all right <laughs> and it's just oh it's so very 50s <laughs> honestly these characters seem like they would be kind of like fun to drink with before all the body happened like it was kind of like what if the finn man fought aliens mm-hmm. also i like that scene a lot because they're coming around to the idea that this guy is a blank like he has no fingerprints his face is a face but doesn't have any discernible features and. Yeah, very nondescript. Yeah. And the friend's wife is like.
2: How tall would you say that thing is? 5'10,
1: oh,
2: thereabouts. How much does it weigh? I don't know, it's pretty thin. Maybe 140 pounds. Jack's 5'10 weighs 140
1: pounds. She puts the other faster than everybody else, and the like horror of her crossing that is really good. Mm-hmm. Like, that was great to love yeah. that. I also really
0: like how quickly, we kind of just jump into the whole premise. As soon as Miles gets back from his trip at the beginning of the film, we start getting hints and inklings of what's going on, and the whole thing
1: has this frame story around it. Mm-hmm. I wrote in my notes that uh, the DM is being heavy handed to make sure that Miles investigates the mystery. <laughs> I think that's totally fair. You have a relatively short film, you have to like get the plot going faster. Honestly, more things should do that. Yeah. I think I liked about this too was that this is earlier in our understanding of psychology. And so the mind was like kind of a more wondrous mysterious thing at this point. And so the way the film was exploring the idea of the human mind, uh, its failings and its potentialities and what makes it human all that jazz was interesting. It is, I think I think it doesn't get discussed as much when you see adaptions of this or parodies or whatnot, is how the film really wants to explore the core of humanity, but also not just in terms of kind of a grand... Emotion make you a good thing, but also the mind makes you a weak thing. It's interesting.
0: Honestly, you can see parallels to that in Star Trek with the Borg.
1: Oh, for sure. You can also see parallels in Us, our companion film for this. In Us, there's this thing where the Tethered have a psychic connection with their doppelgangers for reasons, and we don't really get that explored. Here, the pods can clone the minds of the people that they are doppeling but not their souls, I guess. And that's also not early explorers, just that's how they work. And I think that that kind of creates a a legacy for us that helped me be more okay with that weird tethering thing. With the body snatchers,
0: they grow these blanks, but there's no second body. Like what happens is the original person goes to sleep. And then while they're sleeping, the body snatcher kind of flows into them and takes control.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Like I don't quite get why they need the whole body thing. In-universe explanation, out-of-universe explanation, I totally get that that builds up the horror. Mm. And I think one of the best scenes of the film is where they find the pods in the greenhouse. Yeah. Uh, And we see them, like, birthing out the blanks, and it's so good. There's, like, really great music. The lighting is dramatic. The camera work is very different. It takes a shift. There's a lot of Dutch angles.
1: The effects really hold up for being, what, 70 years old?
0: Yeah, roughly. Yeah. 65
1: my um, thought for the blanks is that it's kind of like how if you're doing a really big file transfer and you're deleting something from a server, you might like have a backup as well just to make sure that something goes wrong. You have mm-hmm. that whole thing backed up before anything else goes on. Mm-hmm. I don't know.
0: Neither of these films do a great job of explaining all of the mechanics behind it. I do think I am willing to buy into Body Snatchers a little bit more than I am to us, partially because it's an alien plant
2: mm-hmm.
0: and partially just because of the era it comes from like there was just a lot of weird sci-fi stuff going on whereas with us horror is in a place where people want explanations for how and why this is happening for the most part unless you're dealing with the supernatural and even then they kind of want some crunch to hold on to Mm -hmm. and i'm not sure us quite gives us enough of that
1: I think on a certain level, it bothers me less because we seem to get how it works mechanically, even if we don't understand why it works like that. Mm-hmm. And I guess that the characters wouldn't necessarily be in a place to understand why it's like that. So I think the story still functions, but I can understand how that might be less satisfying if you need um, that crunch to it. Yeah. I think it's also like working in a more metaphorical space than Body Snatcher, so that's kind of part of why it's more surreal, but...
0: I will say it is working in a, a more metaphorical space but not by much. Both Us and Body Snatchers have a wide variety of interpretations about themes. Um, we, We talked about it in Us last time, and we even both offered our own. In Invasion of the Body Snatchers, people have argued that it is both talking about the supposed infiltration of the United States by Russian double agents, as well as an allegory for McCarthyism.
1: Complete exact opposite things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and if you look into it, neither of them was intended. <laughs> yeah, I think if you told someone this is this is a metaphor for communism, they would believe it. But if you showed it to someone who uh, and told them it was uh, a metaphor for capitalism made by a communist, they would also believe it. So, yeah. yeah, Like, I could very easily see it was being done in a like, this is what corporations turn you into kind of thing. Yeah,
0: like people have been arguing about the themes of this film since it released.
1: Mm-hmm. I think that's part of what makes it fun is that it creates a very clear insider-versus-outsider dynamic between the people and the pod people, mm-hmm. but because they're all just middle-America folks, there's no clear distinction about like what the outsider is meant to be. Just mm-hmm. so the idea of the outsider.
0: Yeah. This has had a number of remakes, and each one kind of explores a different facet, some more successfully than others. Um, I have not seen it, but I hear the, I believe it's the 78 version of Invasion of the Body Snatchers is very well regarded, and some hold it up as even better than the original.
1: Yeah, that's what I've heard. That like That's kind of the one people think of as being like the first, the core one. Yeah. Yeah. In the same way, no one knows about the Fast and Furious from the 50s, except me.
0: <laughs> For those unfamiliar with the 78 version, if you've ever seen that picture of Donald Sutherland like, pointing and screaming, that's where that's from. One thing, we, we talked about, like, the opening narration and how it feels a little bit like a noir film. The thing is, for most of the middle of the film, it's not there, and then it comes back during the climax, and it's honestly a little bit jarring. I wish they would have either dropped the narration or incorporated more throughout.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, that's kind of how narration tends to be. hmm It's the problem with the frame story, you have to kind of remind us that that's a thing again. Mm-hmm. Honestly, I think the way Us has no narration was, is a very good choice for that, because mm-hmm. you could easily have something to bring us into the character's head, but maintaining the twist would be really hard with Us. Yeah.
0: I wouldn't say Us doesn't have any narration at all, because it does have the commercial at the very beginning of the film. True. It, it's very unclear that that's narration and is giving you information for later. Mm-hmm. Like, it's honestly first time through very confusing, like, okay, why is this relevant? Mm-hmm. But I'm okay with that because it does eventually have a payoff.
1: Right. I think there's another difference here that Us kind of asks a lot of the audience. Like, it is not an intro-level movie, whereas *Invasion of the Body Snatchers is pretty upfront about what's happening and handing it all to you pretty gently. Yeah. I mean, sure, the themes can be interpreted in many ways, but it is very clear what's going on at any given point. hmm Although, I don't know. There is a bit in the middle where it's unclear if maybe this is all just a mass psychosis and maybe Dr. Miles is letting his own studies kind of get to him. Mm -hmm. That's that's just a ruse, but whatever.
0: The other interesting similarity is that both of these kind of have unfinished endings. Mm -hmm. where us sure our point of view family survives for the most part but we have the huge secret and reveal of adelaide being one of the tethered originally and there's also still all of the tethered that succeeded and are on the surface now and have no idea where that's going to go Mm -hmm. whereas in body snatchers the psychologist is about to completely write off Miles, and then they bring in someone who is in a car accident with one of the pod trucks, and it corroborates a story, and so they immediately get people on it. But we don't know if they succeed in stopping it or not.
1: Mm-hmm. We don't really know how far it spreads, so we don't know if the person who's about to be contacted is a normal person who is going to handle it well, or if they're a pod person who's going to just close that out. hmm Another difference, though, I think, is that, broadly speaking, Invasion of the Body Snatcher seems very, like, positive about, I guess, what one might assume as, like, the default viewer, so, like, middle American white person who lives in the suburbs Mm -hmm. or whatnot, whereas Us has a lot more critique about the way things are. Like, Invasion of the Body Snatcher seems to be like, oh, no, it would be bad if change happens, whereas Us seems to be more okay with the idea of radical change to the current system, even if it is presenting a scenario where change is not happening in the most ideal way.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I definitely agree and it, it makes sense like if we compare it to the late 20 teens versus the mid 1950s. Mm-hmm. Like the mid 1950s was all about maintaining the status quo. America was at its peak of international power coming off of World War II. It was the only major superpower to maintain all of its manufacturing, so The economy was booming, the middle class was on an upward trend, the suburbs became invented, but there's a lot of crappy things going on too. Like we still have Jim Crow and segregation and so much other inequality that's going on, but it wasn't really affecting white people.
1: Mm -hmm. It's kind of an interesting retrospective, and it was like we were... You know, 1950s might have been, like, one of America's high points in terms of just agency, as it were, for, like, for the country as a whole, not for people within it. And then, you know, 70 years later, what have we done with it? And has that all been the right thing to do?
0: I think I'm done comparing and contrasting. Do we want to get into just talking about us now? Sure. One thing that we didn't get to discuss last time that I want to talk about here is Jason. I think Jason's a really interesting character in Us because he seems a little stunted and i think that that is one of the reasons that he and adelaide are as close as they are because she also went through a rough period in her childhood
1: Mm -hmm. i think you could possibly read him as being on the awesome spectrum but it's not made specific or clear
0: yeah but just for how old that actor is in comparison to his mannerisms he seems a little immature
1: Mm-hmm. and if you compare that to his tethered pluto where most of the tethered are reasonably person-like even if they're very off pluto is almost animal like he, he's feral yeah he runs around on all fours at some points he is portrayed as more inhuman because of the mask mm-hmm.
0: and like yeah that's paralleling the mask that jason wears most of the time
1: mm-hmm. a werewolf mask because you know
0: And I think that's one of the reasons that it's interesting that Jason is the one that gets brought down to below Mm -hmm. where where the Heather used to be is because there are a lot of similarities between Jason's and Adelaide's childhoods. Mm -hmm. And with the end of the film, I'm not quite sure whether the film is trying to imply that Jason knows Adelaide's secret or not.
1: That's, I think, a valid read on that, that he's intuited it in some way, figured it out, in Body Snatchers, they have this thing where characters are like, well... He, he looks, sounds,
2: acts, and remembers like Uncle Ira. But he isn't. There's something missing. There, there's no emotion. None. Just the pretense of it. The words, gesture, the tone of voice, everything else is the same, but not the feeling.
1: It might be like same kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Jason also manages to work out how to like retether himself to Pluto, and then he walks backwards and that forces Pluto to walk back to the same way and then that walks Pluto is just a wall of fire.
0: Yeah, I think that's one of the reasons that I am so frustrated with not understanding the mechanics because I want to know how that worked and how they became retethered and how all of the tethered became untethered in the first place like and were able to pull off this coup. Mm-hmm. It's just not really explained very well unless it was never there in the first place. <laughs> And it was just perceived by
1: them, and not. Which is honestly possible. I'm actually into that read that there was never any kind of tethering, but they just they were made to believe that it was, and therefore it became true. Mm-hmm. Honestly, that works for the film's metaphor better than anything else I've got. So that's my
0: best explanation, but I don't think it's necessarily satisfying.
1: Mm-hmm. I will say if we're. Leaning into the idea that Jason is neurotypical and therefore being more bestial and or more able to connect psychically to people, I guess, there's stuff to unpack there about neurotypicality and representation that might be not great, I think, but also that is a highly nuanced thing that I I don't really feel like I could speak on. Yeah,
0: so. we're also... There's a lot of speculation in all of that. Yeah.
1: <laughs> exactly. It would lean into the trope of a cognitively different person having like greater access to the supernatural which is
0: yeah we talked about that a little bit last time with mrs ellis in tormented Mm -hmm. it's like it's not always great yeah but neither of us are really in a place to comment on
1: it right one thing i can comment on that i really like part of the metaphor for the world above and the tethered world below when adelaide is going down into the tethered space uh there's an escalator going down but but it doesn't go up which I think is a really great uh, metaphor for how it's really easy to fall from a high-class status. It's a lot harder to get back up into it. It's subtle. They don't compound it. The camera doesn't linger. It's just a thing you notice if you've seen enough times to kind of be looking for stuff.
0: And I mean, the film tells you that you should be looking for stuff very early on. Like, the film wants you to know that it's full of symbolism and metaphor and you should be looking for it. Mm-hmm. But you definitely do have to have a critical eye in order to pick it up. And I think that's one of the reasons that this film was never not as necessarily as highly regarded as Get Out was. It's just because it's asking for a little bit more effort and work from its audience.
1: Mm-hmm. I will say it never veers into like, aha, ask me what it means uh, to Charter, yeah. which,
0: yeah. Yeah, it's, it's never like a mystery box bullshit.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And also given how many things I think do work about it, the things that I don't understand for metaphor stuff, I'm like, hmm, I probably don't have the necessary framework to fully understand that. It makes me want to learn more as opposed to be annoyed by it.
0: Yeah. Something that I wanted to do but forgot about because I'm just looking back at my notes again is if there was any significance to Ophelia as the name of the digital assistant. Mm -hmm. Because that definitely seems like something that could be a thing, but I unfortunately did not have time to look into it.
1: Let's see that's what, Hamlet? Yes. Yeah, Hamlet's girlfriend gets killed by by Claudius, goes mad halfway through. I don't know. I don't know Shakespeare. Or rather, I know some Shakespeare. I don't know Hamlet because I'm not one of those gays. I think we've, we're straying a little bit from us, so do you want to switch over to The Haunting? I'm, I'm good
0: to go, go ahead and move over for now.
1: Good, because this is one of my favorite fucking movies. Um, this is one
0: of my least favorite films ever. Wow. I hated it. Wow. I was angry after watching it, wow. and this is probably the third worst film I've watched for this podcast. Wow.
1: Wow, impressive. <laughs> We are very different people.
0: Yes. Honestly, I think this is the biggest disagreement we've ever had on the podcast. That
1: may well be true. Wow. Okay.
0: I like. I was a little nervous coming in to record because I was so angry after <laughs> watching this film. I st- started watching it in like, the middle of the day one day, and I'm like, I am just bouncing off of this. Maybe it needs to be dark out, and you need to be watching this alone. And I tried that, and it still just... <laughs> nothing happens. <laughs> nothing happens. <laughs> And there's a lot of films we watch where nothing happens. To be honest, Attack of the 50-Foot Woman, almost nothing happens. Absolutely nothing happens, yeah. But at least it has the decency to be 66 minutes (laughs) as opposed to nearly two hours. (laughs) And I get why you love it, because Theo... Well, is, is a gay icon, absolutely, and probably the best part of this film. But even a, about seventy minutes in, Theo's just nowhere to be seen, <laughs> and all we get is Nell, and I fucking hate
1: Nell. <laughs> Nell is the worst. Nell is very bad. You're not
0: wrong. But I will let you talk about some of the film's praises, and I will get back to my criticisms later.
1: This is based on uh, The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson. Uh, came out about four years before that, and Shirley Jackson's whole thing is bunch of people in a house where nothing happens for the first 80 percent of the novel then a few exciting things happen for a bit and then nothing happens again for a while and what makes them work is that the prose is really good so it's possible having the book in your head makes it a lot easier to like get through things because you can kind of you see how they're like pulling some of the, the phrases into the dialogue and that kind of stuff you get I can see how that wouldn't work.
0: Yeah, I will agree. The very beginning of this film has some really solid opening narration, and I soon realized, oh, I'm pretty sure this is just lifted directly from the book, which is why it's so good. Mm -hmm. Silence lay steadily against the wood and stone of Hill House, and whatever walked there walked alone. I liked that, but there are so many scenes where it's just two people talking in a room and nothing happening. This is not a movie. This is an audio drama. <laughs>
1: You're not wrong. Actually, yeah, that's totally fair. On this watchthrough, I did notice that like, there wasn't like a lot of actual things happening. It was more so, like characters having conversations. So that doesn't work all that well. i should probably describe the story because imagine of the Watchers everybody knows, the haunting less so. A professor has decided he wants to prove the supernatural is real, so he's rented a extremely haunted house and is trying to find a bunch bunch of people who might be psychic to shove into that house and see what happens. So it really is a lot of meandering waiting for things to happen because it's just him, the rich half-wit son who's going to inherit the house at some point, Nell, a very sheltered woman who's our POV character who is very unlikable, and Theodora, question mark, we don't know her last name, who is a gay, I guess. I don't know. The fact that Theo is pretty directly stated as being a queer woman in a movie that came out in the 60s is actually really impressive. Is it directly stated? Like, it's heavily implied. Sorry, uh, so it's stated as much as you could for the 60s. I don't think there's any other way to read.
0: There's a point where she invites Nell into her bedroom. (laughs) If you're feeling the least bit
2: nervous, just run right into my room, Nell. Thanks.
1: Good night. A point? (laughs) (laughs) Like, three or four, yes. Drink every time. (laughs) I do really love
0: Theo when Theo just gets to go all out, because... She is this proto-goth mm-hmm.
1: and she's just very horny. <laughs> she has a lot of Morticia Adams to her, but like Morticia Adams with a bit more like gin like gin energy. Morticia Adams plus Pam
0: from True Blood. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, that's that's where it is, yeah. <laughs> so this works for me in a lot of ways, partially on, on the gangle, and I'm sorry for all the listeners who don't care about that, but honestly, what are you doing here at this point?
0: Yeah, like I, I knew watching this I figured out why you like this. Like, Jackson was a huge fan of the book, and this is the book. <laughs> it really is. And there's a very gay character. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, that's all Jackson needs to be happy.
1: Mm-hmm. I also think a lot of the dialogue is, like, fun and quippy, and I can just, like, spend time with these people and have fun apart from now. So there's that. And then there's a lot of, like, pretty cinematography. Like, the, the house looks good. They pack the frame. The stark black and white really works here.
0: Part of the reason that the black and white works well here is because, at the time, color film didn't have as much sharpness to it mm-hmm. because of how lit everything needed to be in order to have the process actually work. So filming in black and white was a really solid choice. Everything looks really crisp, and I really enjoy it. And the camera work is probably something that I appreciate most about the film, and it's really solid. Looking here, I can see the evolution from Hitchcock to this to Kubrick and stuff like that in the 70s and the New Hollywood movement. Mm, Like, this feels like a link between those two and it's really interesting to watch
1: this film has that kind of influential quality which is why it's been remade many times at this point you have the book you have this movie you have stephen king's rose red you have the haunting starring Catherine zeta jones and owen wilson it is not well regarded it feels co-universal with the haunted mansion most recently this has been adapted in 2018 for netflix's the haunting of hill house which is a beloved uh, adaptation, like uh, a lot of people had a lot of positive things to say about it. I don't know if I've met anyone who watched it and didn't like it. If there's horror, I'm sure there's. <sighs> so the sequel series, there was some review where guys like "Haunting a Blind Manor" can't be scary because ghosts aren't real, therefore this show can't be real. I'm like, okay, you're coming to this from the wrong place. So why are you reviewing this? Yeah, film? like that's anyway. I'm not here to complain about "Haunting a Blind Manor," but I could. That adaption of Haunting House was made by Mike Flanagan, who made Oculus, which is part of why I wanted to bring this film in, because presumably he wanted to pull some of that in because all the characters in that show are, even though they are clearly different characters from the original book and movie, named for them. So like... Theo is here, Nell becomes Nellie, Hugh Crane becomes Hugh Crane, mm-hmm. etc. So uh, the impression that I have is that he was kind of building up to that, which honestly is probably going to be thought of as his magnum opus, with other stuff like before I sleep, before I wake, whatever it was, and Oculus. Mm-hmm. And Oculus and the Honeyville house are cut from the same cloth, I tell you. <laughs>
0: I will check it out eventually, but immediately coming off after this film, like, why would I ever want to watch <laughs> The Haunting of Hill House
1: on Netflix <laughs> if it's anything like this? It's honestly very little like this. <laughs> it. it is Adam West Batman compared to... Am I looking Batman? Okay. I don't know where it's from.
0: <laughs> and, and even when The Haunting 1963 came out, it was very divisive. People either loved it or hated it. What's like, that like? <laughs> Some people thought it was like the most scary thing ever and other people were like, like me like nothing's happening. I don't care about this. This film is not scary. <laughs> it's just not. Most of the haunting stuff that happens is two people in a room while well, howls and bangs from outside of the room happen. The scariest things that happen in this film is there's One scene where there's some sort of force pushing against a door and the door is like giving as if it was made of like rubber. Like that's a really good effect. And then at one point there's a jump scare of someone opening up a trap door.
1: Mm -hmm. I think part of the problem is that we don't really get the sense of the house having any real menace until quite late in the film. There's no first act kill there's not a sense that whatever's out there coming to get them might be a problem. It's just noises, and mm-hmm. that doesn't really work. But honestly, like it might just be different things. But like for me, it was scary. Like even though nothing was happening, I'd still like stop breathing for a bit. I think part of it is that most of the
0: scary stuff happens to Nell, and I couldn't care less what happens to Nell.
1: That's fair. <laughs> Nell is also definitely in a neurotypical headspace. Not explicitly stated what's going on, and part of it's probably because she has a pretty rough childhood. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I understand the way that she is, but she oscillates between being too timid to say what's on her mind and Theo literally has to drag it out of her because she is psychic.
2: (laughs) My mother died two months ago. You weren't sorry when it happened, were you? No, she wasn't very happy. And I won't say I'm sorry now.
0: Or just being super angry and defensive about people insinuating things about her or insinuating that the things happening in the house are just their imagination yeah
2: maybe of course you wrote it yourself oh sure i'm just the kind who want to see my name scribble all over this foul house well it's one way to attract attention isn't it? you think i like the idea i'm the center
0: of attention and there's no in-between <laughs> mm-hmm we even get a lot of her monologue that tries to explain it, but it's just so boring and I cannot follow along with her train of thought just because of where she's at and where I'm at headspace-wise are so very, very different.
1: Mm. The monologue works for me, but I, I don't know how much of that is just like, oh, I know these lines from the book. I know where they're pulling this from. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I recognize the, the Cup of Stars bit. Mm-hmm. We should probably talk about Oculus as well. Yes, we um, should. So a big thing with haunted house narratives is, and I think this is the thing that I really like about the haunted kind of giving this framework is uh, the idea that a haunted house, is, uh, it's not so much that there's a ghost in it, it's more that the house is diseased or unwell or leprous. The house is deranged. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of where we get into this ongoing link between mental unwellness and haunted houses. Mm-hmm. The idea that the, the house and the haunting kind of distort your perception, less from a neurotypicality perspective and more from a sense of like, trauma or strong fears and PTSD, which is a thing that The Haunting and Oculus are both playing with. Oculus in particular is really big into the idea of The Haunting breaking down temporal barriers that are caused by childhood dramas, which is kind of just how childhood dramas can work sometimes. Mm-hmm. That's what being triggered is like.
0: Both these films definitely deal with a sense of misperception for... For Oculus, it's because of the mirror and its abilities. In The Haunting of Hill House, it's more so only certain people being able to hear some of the noises and pounding. But the house is also built so that there are no square angles in the place. So everything feels disorienting and it's very easy to get lost.
1: Mm -hmm. So in the same way that we kind of have a sense of the mirror's history, but not necessarily where it came from. We don't know why the house and the haunting is like that. It was just born bad. Mm-hmm. There's just something wrong with it. <clears throat> that kind of thing often works really well. Usually when you have a specific origin point for why a haunting is happening, if that origin isn't really rock solid, then the rest of the thing kind of falls flat. Mm-hmm. So the mirror being from somewhere works a lot better than it being, I don't know, Elizabeth Bathory's washroom mirror or something this is a mirror that kind of dracula made
0: yeah we get a bit of a similar thing in tormented where the island has a history of hauntings and weirdness and so with vi's death it just adds on to that as opposed to being something created whole
1: cloth mm-hmm. and people seem to keep dying on that island which makes it seem like the island is kind of hungry mm-hmm.
0: also Something that we did not mention last time we talked about Oculus that is just wild to me. This is produced by WWE Studios. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Like, (laughs) this is trying to uh, uh, help Karen Gillan's wrestling career off the ground. Like, it makes sense. It's, it's a very low-budget production. And back in 2013, films like Oculus were very, very popular and, like, cheap to produce but made lots of money. Mm-hmm. So it makes sense that WWE would get in on that sort of thing, uh, especially on a relatively unknown director like Mike Flanagan. But I saw that come up at, like, the beginning of the movie, and I had to pause and just search. I'm like, is there a WWE wrestler in this? Because <laughs> I gotta know. <laughs> but no unfortunately there's not
1: (laughs) yeah which honestly there's a weird link between like people who are into horror and people who are into wrestling and as a person that's not a huge wrestling fan I don't understand that I get it conceptually but not like emotionally but it's always just fun to see I always like to see how that link comes across sometimes
0: I think part of it is due to the amount of suspension of disbelief required to enjoy both genres. Mm-hmm. I'm also someone who's not terribly into wrestling, but I used to be adjacent to a lot of people who were. Mm-hmm. And so I understand from an intellectual place why people enjoy it. It's effectively just a soap opera, but with fights.
1: Mm-hmm. Which are basically superheroes, so...
0: yeah. And I get that. It's just that it's not my cup of tea. And so I I have more difficulty suspending my disbelief for it.
1: Although I do remember being in a car with someone who told me like the entire story of some wrestler who ate another wrestler's dog or whatever. And I'm like, this is wild. I love this. I only want to have things told to me by someone who cares very deeply about things I've never seen or heard of. That's exactly how I experienced that. But another friend who got bored with wrestling because he realized that there would never be resolution to the storylines. They kind of had to keep things going so the wrestlers would keep wrestling. Otherwise, they would reach a conclusion and stop. I think it's kind of a problem that horror has overall. You do a successful movie about a stabby guy in the suburbs, you have to keep finding more reasons why he continues to do a stab and why nobody has stopped that. Which is where you get into like weird meta stuff with like ghosts or cults or aliens or whatever the the thing is to explain why Jason is back.
0: I think another reason that like there's this connection between wrestling and horror is because both of them are outsider art for the most part. They are easily accessible, relatively cheap to produce, and so there's a very wide audience uh, that can just easily kind of jump in, or creators who want to just easily jump in. Mm-hmm. So, I, th- I think that's another part of it. Since we're talking so much about wrestling, we, I should point out how shitty the WWE is on workers' rights. None of those wrestlers are counted as employees, they're counted as independent contractors, but they have so many stipulations and non compete clauses in their contracts. It's total bullshit. Uh, John Oliver did an episode of Last Week Tonight on it. I think that was one or two years ago. That's really good if you want a brief primer on all of the problems.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: But we should probably get talking about Oculus as opposed to wrestling. (laughs) (laughs) That was a surprisingly long tangent for two people who don't really care about wrestling.
1: (laughs) But I know people who do care about it, so I get it. I mean, it it is pertinent. What we're saying is that uh, at some point, Karen Gillan should have just suplexed the mirror.
0: <laughs> I know we talked about it a lot last time, but I love Karen Gillan as
1: this. She's so good. Mm-hmm. I think another, another parallel we can draw here that you are both like relatively abrasive protagonists. I think it works a lot better here because the wounded dial is turned up just a smidge and the abrasive dial is turned down just a smidge.
0: I think there's also... Part of it is that Nell is not a proactive protagonist. Mm-hmm. Whereas... Whereas Kaylee is.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that helps. Like She clearly wants something. She's clearly going for it, as opposed to just being in a place while things are happening to her. Yeah. If
0: things happen to Nell. Kaylee does things.
1: Mm-hmm. It becomes a contest of will between Kaylee and the mirror.
0: Exactly. And I, I think that's one of the reasons that I'm okay with the abrasiveness. Mm-hmm. It's also abrasive in a much different way it's abrasive in a much more typically male way and that may unfortunately be why I'm more willing to accept that abrasiveness than Nell's hmm. which is I don't know I'm not gonna spend this podcast digging into my own
1: biases right now come o- come over to my couch <laughs> come to my gender couch let us talk about this and maybe that's why I'm more into Nell who knows yeah I'll also say there is a actress playing young Karen Gillan who is a different actress from the one who was playing young Karen Gillan in Doctor Who and that messes with me? <laughs> of course it does. It's just enough of a thing for me to be like, wait, no, that's not right. Uh, jumping back to the abrasiveness a little bit, I think one of my
0: favorite scenes that just shows how pronounced it is is... We get a scene of Kaylee in the past, like begging her parents for a cell phone. The answer is still no. Oh my God, Ellie has one and Maddie has one. I'm the only kid in my class without a phone. That is terrible. And then when we jump forward, not long after that, she immediately takes her brother's phone. Mm
2: -hmm. I have private landlines for today's experiment along with my cell phone. And I will now ask my brother for his phone so that I can control all electronic devices. I just got this, you know.
0: And I just I love the journey that the film takes us on without really commenting on it, but just how much Kaylee has changed.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I think a part of it is, like, so <clears throat> later the house ability to manipulate phone calls and then also her ability to use her cell phone camera as a way to show like the truth of what's happening in the world is you can have this through line of like phones as a metaphor for agency, which mm-hmm. is useful, cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if it was making much of a commentary, but you know, just, yeah. it's there. It's a useful yeah. synecdoche. Like, I will also give it props because I
0: know that... Yeah, props. <laughs> because I know a lot of films struggle to deal with the problem of cell phones and having instant communication between people. And I think the film does a really good job of incorporating phones with avoiding that problem. A lot of films, they will just make it so cell phone use is completely gone. Mm-hmm. And, like, that's one way to solve it. I'm not going to begrudge a filmmaker for making that decision. But I think it takes a little bit more finesse and courage to incorporate phones, but still avoid that
1: problem. Mm -hmm. It also makes it a lot more scary. It makes it so that you can't trust anything that's happening, which is a really spooky concept. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because we have come to rely on our phones quite a lot in the year of our Lord 2020. And the idea that your phone could be telling you things that aren't true is...
0: (laughs) I love you just walked into that one. I didn't even have to comment. You just realized it. It's like you stepped on a rake.
1: Yeah, I... Okay, so... Anyway, life is very scary now. It is. Um, I get what you're saying. (laughs) Right, I mean, like... Our phones are delivering true things that are scary as opposed to untrue things that are scary. It's different. Well, I,
0: (laughs) I know that... Me and the audience will be able to tell what you're talking about, but.
1: Okay, I can see you on my camera. Good. <laughs> <sighs> yeah. I think there are some things in this film that don't work as well as the use of phones in, in horror. I think that we see a lot of the mom's meltdown. I think that would have been a lot stronger if we only got glimpses of it. So if we were seeing only about what the kids are seeing, not like stuff that they aren't present for, that would help increase the fear of the mom as a character and make her less of a character. Things are happening to him, more of a part of the horror of the mirror and the house in general.
0: Yeah, if, if we had a more third person limited point of view. Mm-hmm. I I definitely agree with that. And I also, I wish they incorporated the ghost a little bit more. Like we get some really great glimpses and foreshadowing for it, but we don't see a lot of it in the film proper. Mm -hmm. And I I think it's a shame because I think it's a really solid design. Mm -hmm. Another thing that I I noticed about this film, especially with just how Kaylee is portrayed Someone involved in this film is really into true crime podcasts.
1: Absolutely. <laughs> the way she portrays things definitely has that same kind of tone and vibe and almost cadence that you know you get in like, My Favorite Murder and other things like that. Yeah, I'm always glad when true crime culture filters into horror movies because it's that thing where no one's ever seen a zombie movie in a zombie, in a zombie movie, you know? And we don't have that problem here.
0: Mm-hmm. It gives more of a sense that the world is lived in
1: mm-hmm. and it helps make her seem smart and competent that she's done all of her homework that she's very prepared on this but also like that she's printing this stuff on her work computer so like there have been some HR complaints about her just printing on dead bodies <laughs> so I requisitioned you your own printer you don't have to share anymore okay
0: because I guess there were some complaints about people printing out their sales reports and finding some really graphic crime scene photos from uh, your computer
1: Haley, you wait for everyone to have a lunch break come on this is easy. This is a textbook. Mm-hmm. Quick sidebar. Sorry for doing this again, but here we are now. My favorite part of Halloween 2018 is that my cook is out because some true crime podcasters got too overzealous. <laughs>
0: <sighs> uh, I think we're ready to start moving into our end segments. Yeah. As always, we'll go ahead and finish off with Final Girl, Best Girl, but we have a few other things since we now have these companion films. So between... Invasion of the Body Snatchers and The Haunting.
1: Who do
0: you think is a better protagonist between Betty or Nell?
1: And Betty is uh, Miles' girlfriend, yeah? Yeah. I think for just who I'd have over for dinner, Betty, obviously. She seems like a lot of fun. I feel like she would have witty repartee and mixed good cocktails. But I think that Nell is a more compelling protagonist from a writerly perspective.
0: I definitely agree with you on that as much as I dislike Nell I do think that Nell has more going on than Betty does most of what Betty has going on is her relationship to Miles which mm-hmm. is not surprising it's from the 56 right
1: whereas Nell has a lot going on that makes her like that and it makes her at least understandable if not necessarily always sympathetic
0: mm-hmm. next question Swapping our protagonists for us and Oculus.
1: Should we assume that the same thing has happened? So, like, as a child, Karen Gillan gets swapped with the tethered, and now it's.
0: I think that's, okay. that's the best way to do that.
1: Um, hmm.
0: There's a lot. <laughs> There's a lot of not fun things happen to these women, unfortunately.
1: Yeah, last time we did this, it was like, like a lamia and a curse and a, and a, like a really trustful hometown. <laughs> this is um, less fun stuff than that. Well. They're both very driven women, very driven, very competent, very straightforward, but where I think... Uh...
0: I think one of the major differences between them is Kaylee has dealt with her PTSD much better than Adelaide has. Yeah. I think she has a better handle on it. They're both dealing with it in very different ways. Yes. Uh, but I do think that Kaylee's coping strategies better suit her.
1: Mm-hmm. I also think that Kaylee is all about having a like very specific, methodical, well laid out plan that she like was very prepared for. Honestly, they both have very similar goals, too. Like, I'm looking at Red as who would be the Kaylee here. Red also had a plan that had a kill the thing you don't like and also make a big demonstration about something. And the same that Kaylee wanted to do that. So, man, these are very similar characters. I will say that what made Adelaide do well in her life was that she learned very quickly to perform normalcy really well. I think that Kaylee did not do. So I think that... The Kaylee Dolph King might have also had a lot more trouble performing well as a person and acquiring access to the class status that Adelaide winds up having.
0: I think another big problem is Adelaide did a really good job of making sure her family was strong and uh, had strong emotional bonds. Mm -hmm. I don't think Kaylee would be capable of that given how she's handled her PTSD and just kind of how callous and cold she is mm-hmm. i don't think kaylee would nef- necessarily do well in us although i'm not certain that adelaide would do very well in oculus either
1: <laughs> admittedly the last glass is kind of op so yeah. i'm not sure if anybody would do really well yeah that's, um that's i think very... she would do approximately as well although we did mention that she's uh good at creating family bonds so might have more people in the house so it might have actually gone better for them so there's not just two people rattling around it but it might be up to four mm-hmm. or, or more which it's probably better because you can have more people keeping track of each other. Adelaide was also like all about getting out of the house as soon as, as possible, so that might have
0: helped. Yeah, that's very true. So, yeah, I think Adelaide would probably do better in a swap scenario than Kaylee did.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Now we come to Final Girl, Best Girl, and who do we feel dealt with their situations better in their own films? Hmm. I mean, well, <laughs> unfortunately, Kaylee dies. So. Yeah. And it's... Really unfortunate because she dies due to her own failsafe. <laughs> right.
1: Hosted by her own pretard, as it were. Mm-hmm.
0: She's doing this with her brother. Mm-hmm. I'm not certain she needed to do that, and I think if he wasn't there, things might have gone better for her. Yeah. <laughs> Adelaide makes it alive, her family is alive. Um, the coup has happened, and so life is going to change drastically. And she may have to deal with her son knowing her secret, Mm -hmm. but I think overall she came out better than Kaylee did. Yeah.
1: I mean, alive helps. But also having a concrete family unit in a post-apocalyptic scenario is honestly pretty good. Like Mm -hmm. being a loner does not work for you, but Mm -hmm. having like a whole family who's ready to work together and is ready to kill pretty quickly, Mm -hmm. honestly, a good place to be. Yeah, Surprisingly bloodthirsty family, which makes Adelaide our final girl best girl.
0: Yep. So we come down to the decision of what moves on to the final.
1: This is hard. So I like both these films a lot. Yeah. The ways in which they succeed and fail are very different, so it's not an easy comparison to make. Mm-hmm.
0: With us, it feels like like a thousand little things that I'm like, mm, don't like that, mm, don't like that. With Oculus, it's very much I am loving this, I'm loving this, and then it gets too hard to parse, and that really downer ending.
1: Yeah. Which is why I think I would have us move ahead for this one.
0: Yes, I would also agree, but it's very close.
1: It's very close, and I think it's part of it is like us has a very like. It's a satisfying ending, even if it's, like, not really a punch-the-air moments. Yeah. Whereas um, Oculus does such a good job of making you want to see the protagonist succeed, that when she doesn't, it is no longer fun. It's not like, you know, a Slash movie where it's like, oh, I don't care about these characters, therefore they can get murdered.
0: It also has a little bit of what I'm going to call the Steinbeck problem, where characters are, like, in the same place or worse off than they were before and mm-hmm. like that happens a lot in horror but here specifically like this is pretty much just a repeat of what happened last time they interacted with the last year last except one of them is dead now tim is going to be tried for murder again he's going to have to go back to the mental facility again mm-hmm. and i think if we had any sort of context for how the recordings were going to be perceived by people outside of the house i think that could have helped but Mm -hmm. we don't get that and so there's this sense of dissatisfaction with that ending
1: and i think it would be very easy to have like just a few lines or scenes implying that there was something successful about the recordings that there's some kind of evidence on there that would be enough to give the movie a like bittersweet triumphant ending even if they're in a bad place now
0: honestly you know what i would have loved is a over the credits if we had a true crime podcast talking about what happened here and then talking about the leaked tapes
1: yeah yeah i think the way that us works for me is that it is definitely making a statement about the world and what needs to be done to make it a better place it is telling us that we need to end class divides and help people who are underprivileged be in a better place otherwise it will never lead to violent revolution that will hurt everybody in some way whereas oculus is like i do know stay sexy don't get murdered <laughs> Uh, So for all those reasons, it's you, it's me, it's us. And Kulis will have to go back and reflect a little bit.
0: Which means that our final is going to be Klaus. Us. us. Hey! I'm
1: so glad that worked out. Yes. If you want to catch that finale, make sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and wherever you catch your pods. Uh,
0: And that finale should actually be coming out uh, the night before Halloween. Mm -hmm. So that'll be great. Uh, Do we want to announce we have... Coming up after the bracket? Yeah, sounds good. So we do have two follow-up episodes to our Bride to Faunster bracket. One will be a double feature of The Babysitter and uh, Ready or Not.
1: This is our Samara Weaving Power Hour. <laughs> That'll last about four hours, but whatever. You get more bang for your buck. And then
0: we will also be doing a double feature of Happy Death Day and Happy Death Day to You. Really, this is just a, these are some really fun horror films that have come out in the, the past few years that we want to enjoy and talk about on the podcast. Mm-hmm.
1: And you have not seen all of them, so I'm very glad to see your reactions to some yes, of this. Yes,
0: I've only seen half of the films that we're going to be talking about.
1: And not the half you'd expect. <laughs> uh, so we hope you join us
0: for that. It'll be a lot of fun, I hope. If you want to catch that episode as soon as it goes live, make sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and wherever you catch your pods. Once again, this has been the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.